Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know of anybody looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, please uh, drop me an email, tim at aggrad.com. Would love to hear from you. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you enjoy uh, agriculturally related content, head over to their website for more podcasts and vlogs. That's farmruralag.com. Hey, as you know, we're about to wrap up this series on blockchain, and we could not wrap things up without getting the perspective of a producer. One thing I am absolutely committed to on this show, because I am not a farmer and or rancher myself, is getting that perspective on here as much as possible. And I have not done a good job of that with this series. I've been so excited to chase down the startups and the academics and the thought leaders in this space that I haven't yet brought it back down to the practical farm level by getting uh, the perspective of, of a producer. So we have a fantastic interview here today with Jared McDaniel. He's a farmer and rancher in Texoma, Oklahoma, which is in uh, far western Oklahoma, kind of where the Texas panhandle meets the Oklahoma panhandle. And uh, he has some really, really interesting perspectives. Now, Jared, if, if you follow him on Twitter, uh, you'll know this. And if you don't, you, you probably ought to follow him on Twitter. He is uh, very progressive when it comes to things like uh, farm-related data, new technologies, new farming practices. He's just a really progressive guy and uh, has done very well for himself in his his uh, farming and ranching operation out there in Texoma. So we actually have a pretty wide-ranging conversation that sort of starts off talking about uh, data and then obviously gets into blockchain and even trading cryptocurrencies later on in the interview. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. I know I did. Please uh, enjoy this interview with Jared McDaniel, farmer and rancher in Texoma, Oklahoma. And before we get too deep into the blockchain stuff, I want to just ask you just about data in general. You know, obviously that is the hot topic of of ag right now. Mm. You know, there's several startups getting um, millions of dollars in funding, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. Uh, It's kind of a race for farm data. I guess what, from a farmer's perspective, you know, what are your thoughts on all that? Okay. Well, here's my latest conclusion, because I've I've just like everybody, I've changed my mind about 10,000 times as to the value of data. And, you know, when everybody, myself included, when we started collecting, you know, getting the yield maps starting to to get you know GPS auto steer where you could document and, and you start creating these files of information and you know the we did it kind of almost like on autopilot or autonomously we just all went out and, and like good good workers we went and collected all this data and there really wasn't nobody really did anything with it and I, I sure didn't you know I had a mountain of data and what I've what I've came to the conclusion now is that you know, when I'm running a combine and I see the yield map and I see the, the instant time feedback, you know, on a field scale of, oh, this worked here, this didn't. Like, I'm getting real-time analytics in my brain as I'm watching that data unfold. And, and it's almost like that's taking the test. You know, the harvest is you studied all year, you've done everything you could, and you harvest it. Well, you've taken your test. You look at it. You get the grade or whatever you did right or wrong. And then I, like, I personally apply that to – what I'm going to do in the future. Now, 
do I go back and look at those old yield maps right now? No. You know, is there a point that somebody might compile that data and then obviously try to try to extrapolate some kind of pattern that would then help me? Yeah, that might be possible, but I don't see that that's a tangible benefit right now because you just don't have, you don't have that way of breaking down that data. Now, some guys are, are they getting there, you know, and, and, and that data in aggregate that then you could also kind of mine or go in, go into it and, and pull out, you know, patterns that emerge, you know, I think like a farmers, the FBN farmers business network is doing good at that, you know, uh, Obviously, Climate Corp. Of course, I don't think we get to see that data from them, even though it goes up to the cloud through the field view and all that good stuff. But there's there's companies that are attempting to do it, but I don't know that there's a lot of tangible benefit right now to the individual producer. And it's not because he's not getting quote paid for his data. It's just that even if he got paid for it, no one really knows what to do with it yet. I think I think that's really where we're at right now, or at least that's where I see it. Now, I mean, I, I get my instant gratification from seeing that data and I can go back and reference it. But, you know, as far as, as, as the industry, I just don't know that they've quite figured out what to do. You know, we've done a real good job of amassing a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> so it seems like for you, it's kind of like you, you've done the work. So, I mean, you know your fields um, and, and you've done all the work. And then you kind of, as this, the growing season progresses, you kind of have in your mind what a field's going to do. And then, like you said, it's mm -hmm. kind of like your, your, your grade at the end of the semester, right? At the end of the growing season, as you're watching that yield monitor, you're either surprised or, or validated on kind of what you thought. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. You're watching, you know, and, and like on pivots, you can see where, where a sprinkler, you know, got stuck and maybe it got a little more water or maybe a motor shut off and they had a, a slice out of the field that didn't get as much water. You can see those patterns emerge. You can see if, you know, I, I do all my own spraying and I can tell exactly where I screwed up spraying, you know, how to skip or, you know, you can see these, these things emerge and you can also cut, tie them back to the event that caused that to happen. Now, and I like, here's the thing about a corn plant or an animal, you know, the, the, well, I'll go, stay with the corn plant, not to get too off track, but you know, it's has the same life pattern every year. You know, it gets planted. All it wants to do is grow and make more corn. You know, we forget sometimes we think that that corn remembers what happened last year, you know, the year before, not really, you know, it, it's the same one. We all get older, but it stays the same age. It just, it just lives its life one year at a time. And so as you know, we should get a, a better advantage over the plant. You know, we, we have experience, we have the ability to, to pull from years and years worth of our own data in our head or data that's written down on, on a, you know, on a cloud, on a hard drive somewhere. You know, we should be able to be, to be ahead of that plant just by the fact that it, it resets its brain every year, you know? Right. And farming is so nuanced. It would seem to me it, it would be difficult to remove, you know, remove the farmer from farming, right? It's not just like, hey, here are these 20 data points. And as long as we get these right, we're going to have a heck of a crop. It, it just seems like there is that, oh, yeah, I remember when the pivot got stuck right there. You know what I mean? It just seems like there's mm -hmm. so many different nuances that we can continue to collect the data and it can be helpful, but it's always going to have to be processed through a human element that includes kind of these the intuition, intuition aspect. Um, is there anything that you are collecting data on now that you maybe weren't five years ago? Mm, I, just, I started, uh, well, we've been collecting data with the sprayer, but I finally got uploaded to the field view drive. I mean, I've, 
it seems like everybody, you're either, you know, everybody's kind of in their different tribes of their data collection. Like you've got, you know, Trimble Ag Leader, mm-hmm. you know, John Deere, or you've got the Field View. You know, there's, I don't know how many there are. I'm going to say four to five big, you know, uh, companies that maybe are behind that, that data collection. So, you know, I'm, I'm with the field view cause that's where I started with the field view planning and then the yield sense. And of course the sprayer, you know, I, I started to collect and collaborate all that stuff into one, you know, one tribe or, you know, all underneath the same umbrella. Yeah. So the sprayer is the latest one. I, I think in the future, and this isn't with farming, I think that I'll get way more into the data collection on cattle. I mean, then that happens ubiquitously across the industry. I mean, you go to a feedlot, every one of them has got an EID, you know, electronic tag and they can, you know, we are getting it drilled down with animals to like, you know, one cow is equivalent to one acre almost mm. as far as the data you could collect off of it. And, and the, you know, but a cow does have history. That's the difference between plants and animals is that cow will remember from year after year. And, you know, it is an ongoing project where the, the, you know, where the crops are more short, short term in the data collection and what you can utilize. But, that's really interesting. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like how you think you will use uh, when you get cow by cow data, like which data points are you most interested in? Well, I, I don't do this. Well, obviously you're uh, at the bottom line would be the profit per cow, you know, like yeah, yeah. that cow, her calf this year was X number profitable. And if you keep that same cow for five years, you know, is she, is she the most profitable mother in the herd or is she one of the bottom ones you know and, and at the baseline would be just dollars profitability now to get to that you can use several metrics and you know whether it be weaning weight yearling weight uh, average daily gain I mean the, those are kind of the old standard ones the new ones and and I don't I don't do this but my my in-laws do it and I've, I've seen it you know with some of these uh, herd indexes like oh the current one that they're that I'm looking at is the Bill and Sally test. And I believe those people used to be associated with uh, the American Angus Association and some of the gene max and some of those tests that basically they go in there and you take the blood sample and you can get your, you know, assuming you have a big enough database, you can get your lineage from the, the, the cow, what bull, you know, genetically identify them and then also score that with the, with just the blood test and the genetics make a, come up with a ratio to score that animal within not only your herd, but also within your, your, the industry. Mm. It's kind of a benchmarking tool that's being used, but it, it can be done with a blood test. Now that's pretty cool because you could then take that data, build your own database, start to extrapolate maybe some cows that if you wouldn't look at them, they're just ugly. And you're like, I don't like her. <laughs> there might be some reason why you don't <laughs> like her, but she's mean, <laughs> but she, you, you, she might have a great, ROI score or a great, you know, uh, blood sample. And then you, if you can match that genetic data, you know, the genetic potential there with the, you know, some real world quantifiable data, then you can also get into this ugly cow has, is probably the most profitable. And I want to base my future genetic decisions off of animals that are more like her group. You know, you could, I've noticed this as I've improved my genetics or what I think I've done improvement genetics, the cows have actually gotten uglier. (laughs) that's just that's my that's my my rancher side looking at it is man some of these are just ugly but (laughs) they perform well in the feedlot they do they do what they're supposed to they're you know the best economic you know driver you know that's the best utilization of that resource that i have is for a cow that produces like she does now i but to get to that it it requires all again all the data collection you know now once you collect it what are you going to do with it how are you going to 
How are you going to take where you take these animals to a feedlot, feed them out, get kill data, and then you mine that kill data to try to go back and, and match it with, you know, the mother, the father, what this combination did. So that, so that to me is a very real world example of where that is, you know, practically apply, you know, applicable goal to, to a ranch. Now the farming, you know, we do that in the sense in that we say, okay, this hybrid, this variety did well. So we, we want to plant more of it on this type of soil or, you know, seeding rates and populations. And, and, you know, when we start looking at the data, you'll like, just like the cow, you might be surprised that it's an ugly cow that is your best, most profitable one. You might be surprised that some variety that doesn't show up in yield trials or in data published by seed companies might actually be one of your better hybrids of varieties but it's but it's not something that you would find any other way any other way than by kind of mining the data that's being provided by everybody in mass right i think we would all be surprised at how how much bias we have we all think we're unbiased but but i i think that's a great example with the ugly cows like that has to factor in your decision when you're not using the hard you know the hard numbers on it um now for for you with your operation do you i imagine do you sell your calves to like uh, a feedlot or like a, a um, like a cattle feed, you know, cattle yard or a, a calf yard. That's the word I was trying to think of. Like a feedlot or a calf yard. I, I've done both. I've, I've sold them as, as right off the wheat pasture, you know, as, as yearlings going into a yard. I've retained ownership and actually fed them out, had them killed on the grid, you know, to determine kind of a really more than anything to benchmark where I'm at, yeah. you know. And, and that was about three or four years ago when I was around 90 to 95% choice and then 5% select and no primes. Now I think if I'm, and I'm planning on feeding some this year, I'm hoping that I increase the percentage of prime have zero to no select carcasses, you know, trying to raise that benchmark. So, <clears throat> so that's, that's what I've done with cattle in the past. And, but there's also, I don't necessarily need to feed every year. If the market says, Hey, sell your calves as, as yearlings, you know, I'll pay attention to that because I can come back and, if I only feed them out once every three or four years, then I can, you know, that gives me a, a waypoint almost on the map of where I'm going. You know, some guys are hardcore and they want to feed them out every year. I just kind of look at, well, the market's not really good. It's, there's not a lot of return for the risk that I'm going to take by putting those animals on feed. I'd much rather go ahead and just sell them, capitalize that, move forward, get the data next year. You know, it's not, it's like, you don't, you don't necessarily have to get, every data point you get enough along the line and you'll you'll see where you're going yeah one of the questions i was going to ask you kind of related to blockchain here is going to be you know we always talk about how oh blockchain is going to be great for the consumer because they could trace their product all the way back to the farm well what does that what does that do for the farmer you know Mm-hmm. theoretically not much but but this example is actually really interesting it would seem to me that if you could put kind of the the cattle on the blockchain so you're collecting data on them from day one um you you have them on the blockchain you could actually follow them through even if you were to sell them to a calf lot a calf yard or a feed lot all the way through to the processor you could kind of collect data and then maybe make better decisions on whether to feed them out yourself or to sell them and at least kind of it seemed like you would have more ability to make those decisions is that something that you thought of related to blockchain yes and and all those things do exist already maybe in different form i think the thing about blockchain technology that would be nice is that it would unify the the platform that people use you know like i i can have like a the old school pen and legal pad and sit there and write every every data point down from the cattle transfer it into a database you know send them to a yard i mean it can be tracked there's even uh 
businesses that, that specialize in, in tracking that data point for your cattle. But here's the, pro the problem is, is that those are great within, oh, it's almost like an intranet versus the internet, you know, right. the, the internet being that everybody has that data within the industry. And then we go to a feedlot, then we go to the packing house and then it gets shipped out to retail, you know, but really the, our intranet stops at like the feedlot or the packing house. Cause once that leaves there, that animal goes to retail. And that's like a, that to me, that's kind of the abyss that the producers and cattle anyway, we face that abyss once it leaves really the feedlot, you get to the packing house and that animal goes 15 different directions. You know, what's the value of each part of that animal? Well, with the blockchain, we should be able to, in, in the best way I've had it described, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, it's like a, a one ledger that has a million copies scattered everywhere. Right. And they're all updated simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So you basically always have a constant updated record that can't, that if one is destroyed, you have a copy, you know, and it, it all, it all feeds upon itself and, and creates its own security system, but because nobody can tamper with that many, many pieces of evidence. And I believe it's back to time verified and there's several other things that go into it. But long story short, what that does is it prove it gives you a absolutely impeccable document about that animal, almost from conception to consumption. You could say this animal was the product of an AI mating between this bull and this cow and it was born on this day, it was fed this for its life, it was given these medicines, it was fed X, you know, this ration at this feed yard, slaughtered, and then, now here's where you maybe get hard tracking, you know, individual cuts of meat, you know, primal cuts like steaks, or, you know, where, where is that individual piece of that animal going? You know, it's going to be hard to track that, but if you had a group that was unified in their, in their methodology, then you could almost come, you know, overcome the current system of, of commodity type allocation of, you know, that animal, when you break it down into more of a specialized, Hey, we've got this feeding group. We can guarantee you this animal has done meets these specs. And here's our blockchain. Here's our ledger that shows exactly what happened. Now feel free to enjoy the meat. Now, with all that being said, I think one of the biggest problems that I see with this is we're giving these consumers, you know, everything that we know about this animal. And as animal scientists and people involved in ag, we know that that is absolutely the best way for that animal to be raised in that environment. No question. But the consumer may have an idea of, well, I want, I want it to be fed organic hay. I want it, you know, and then I don't want to ostracize organic people any more than I already do, but <laughs> you know, so what if we collect all this data and we give it to the consumer and then they decide, well, I don't like this about this animal. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, what if we go through all this trouble to do it and then the people that we do it for really don't care? I mean, that, that's a realistic possibility too. Yeah. I, I know. I think that's something we should, we should be talking about. So um, I think one important limitation of blockchain is that it gives the, the, I mean, it's great that it gives the transparency and the real information, but it does zero. And I think it should be a really underscored point. It does zero to educate the consumer, right? It gives yeah. them data, but it doesn't teach them any context about how to use that data or, or how they should look at that data. And I, I think you hit on a massive point that I think, I don't know the answer. That's a, I mean, it's just a really good question. Yeah. I mean, and, and right now I'm in the camp that I think that, uh, I think the consumer is the last person we should listen to. <laughs> and, and, and people, I think get a little frustrated with that, but I mean, I, I, any other walk of life, if you're, if your three-year-old child walked up and hand you, handed you scissors and said, 
I'm going to go use these or I'm going to go cut stuff as a parent, as an adult, as whoever in the situation, you'd be like, no, you probably don't need scissors. You know, you're not, you're not ready for it. You don't know how to use them. Like that would be our responsibility because as a parent, as a person who knew more in the situation, we had the authority mm-hmm. and the child who was just trying to do what they thought was right, wanted to play with scissors. <laughs> so now morph that onto the consumer. The consumer is like the kid that walks up and says, I want this. And I have a real problem that the ag industry hasn't gotten the authoritative figure to say, well, this is what's right. You know, I know you want this, but that's not what we're going to give you because that is, it's impractical. It's not real. You know, there's, and that's a, that's a whole mother. That's, that's a whole giant ball of wax to, un, to unwind, you know, the, the theory, the, almost the religion behind the alt food movement, but. Right. No, it, I mean, it's a tough one. Cause I, I think, you know, the flip side is you could draw the comparison to, um, to producers being like, you know, politicians because theoretically consumers can vote with, with their dollars. Right. Of and course, so, of you, course. Know, you, you end up with the mess we're in today because you have to pander to, to, to the voter base. But when the voter base doesn't, and I don't want to get political on the show, but maybe if the voter base does, isn't good at doing their own research and actually thinking, <laughs> yes. right? you, you end up with exactly what they wanted, but based on some assumptions that maybe weren't true. And well, I'll say it. You might end up with somebody like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You said it, everybody. Not me. I don't want the hate mail. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much against all of them. So there you go. Well, and that's, and that's just it. You're right. I mean, that he's a symbol for, for the state of the, of the political system right now. The political yeah. process is yeah. it's but, not but what you're it, saying, it, which is in the same vein, you've got to respect that. That is how the democracy works right. is that right. this part, you know, and, and likewise kind of back to the consumer. I mean, I don't necessarily like that, that, that the consumer has demanded that producers acquiesce to what to, to this is what you have to do. You have to produce it this way and you have to grow what we want. I don't agree with that, but I also understand the logic behind I'm in a business to make money and to make money. They say, I mean, completely irrational, completely off kilter is I'm going to do something that is agronomically not not the best to do for this land it's the least efficient it uses more resources it's not sustainable but i'm going to do that because that's what i'm getting paid to do mm-hmm. so so then you're almost you're really into a moral quandary there i mean and then it becomes you know again back to almost a religious argument then yeah and then in that case you know and a misinformed or an uninformed consumer ends up ultimately creating um a followership of 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 producers. Yeah. And is that what you want? You know, do you want, do you want a misinformed or an uninformed consumer mm-hmm. uh, dictating the supply? But, but you're right. I mean, I, I totally see, to see both sides of that. I think. And, uh, and, and, and blockchain might enable people to see, Hey, this meat, you, you, you can use the traditional practices. You could go carry that all the way through, consume it, do health tests. You know, you could quantify the stability and the safety through that method. I mean, it's been done numerous times in scientific studies, but you could prove it once again, you know, you could trace, I mean, and that, you know, that's one thing, I don't know if blockchain could do it, but you know, the national animal ID system that was, it's been kicked around for a decade now, you know, when the first mad cow happenings went on, you know, the first cases of mad cow, that was one thing that spurred the talk of let's, let's have a national animal ID be very, very easy to do if you had a blockchain system set up. I mean, you could instantly, it would be easy to, to, to implement that. Now, would you get all the ranches in the United States to go along with it? Probably not. Right. <laughs> You'd have black market cows. 
but but you know you should in in theory be able to trace that back and the the, the interesting thing about the the beef segment versus like uh, the poultry and uh, even the swine industry is those two industries got vertically integrated you know some decades ago you know they the, the big corporations essentially took over that so they already have these data analytics like they already have some of this stuff in in massive hog companies in poultry you know they can go through there and they can break down every little thing all the way from the time it's conception to the time that it goes to the slaughterhouse mm-hmm. so they're very efficient in that you know in the beef industry we're we're not we're we're almost too segregated or too separated to be to come together and and starting to amass that data. So you almost need a horizontal integration between all the producers, you know, some kind of a network or some kind of a a way to tie all that data with each other and then use it to kind of synthetically vertically integrate with the rest of the industry. Because I don't think you'll ever see vertical integration in the beef side just simply because of the landmass required for production, you know, from, from the start get go. No, no companies right now have the capital to, completely vertically integrate on a large scale in the beef right. industry anyway. Yeah, no, that would, that would take uh, a more massive shift than, than blockchain itself. Um, but I do think that's a great point about kind of how fragmented uh, the, the beef industry is uh, because, because yeah, I think it could benefit, but it would take, it would take everyone to buy in. I'm not quite sure how that part of blockchain is going to get integrated. And of course that's one of the arguments against it. Mm-hmm. Um, what about so? Do you do you have to buy any of your forage, your you know, hay, or anything like that? Uh, we we try to raise it all on on our farm ground. You know, we'll graze corn stalks. We'll even bale some corn stalks and and grind them in feed rations. Uh, put up wheat hay, Sudan hay. Well, we used to do alfalfa heaven in in several years. Uh, you know, we try to raise our own forage. You know, it, the more we can do on farm, the less we can you know buy from outside sources, the better off I am. I mean, okay. usually I can, I can raise it cheaper than I can buy it. Not always, but most of the time. I just wonder about hay. Like, you know, I used to trade feed ingredients and sometimes get into some hay and it was always so tricky because, um, you know, no two hay fields were the same in terms of mm-hmm. quality and all that stuff. I just think it, it might be an interesting application for blockchain in, in the hay trade. There are these online hay exchanges but I think where they fall short is is the quality specs. It, I mean, it was a nightmare to try to you ship you ship a load of hay that the farmer says one thing, it gets to the dairy, and they say you know polar opposite, and so there's no kind of transparency there. I think yeah. that might be an interesting application. I, I I never thought about that, but you're exactly right. You know, you get into the to the smaller, more specialized markets, and and yeah, hay, feed ingredients, a lot of that that type of. Uh, you know, you could have samples taken and sent to a laboratory and then that sample by a third party be tied back to this load number. And then you would, without a doubt, be able to say, okay, this load is safe. You can use it, you know, or hey, would be, you know, it, can you scale something like that? Or can you implement where the turnaround's fast enough? Like by the time somebody tests the hay, it might already be getting fed to the, to the dairy cow stand in line before you get the results back you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. It would have to happen extremely, uh, extremely quick. I don't know more, more questions than answers. That's kind of, that should be what I call this whole blockchain series. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, because you really, I mean, yes. And and I see this in agriculture and this goes in a, in more of a broad perspective, you know, for the most part, we're, we are very, very technology deficient, I think versus what other industries have integrated with. Now we've gotten, we're starting to get hardware and tractors and we're starting to collect some data there. And, you know, we're, we're getting further into it, 
but even the even the hardware devices that you see and the software that's written for for uh, farm applications I mean it would be I mean and I don't mean this in a bad way but I kind of do it would be laughable if you took some of that stuff to another industry and said hey why don't you use this software hmm. or I mean and I'll just say like some of the the displays in a tractor you know, up to a couple years ago, we're still using, uh, this is embarrassing, a thumb drive to, to update the software or to upload the data with, I mean, with the, the technology at hand, it's embarrassing that we're still getting spoon fed this outdated stuff in agriculture. I mean, you look at the, at the tractors, you know, they're still using an old CAN bus system. Why can't we have, you know, wireless server IPs doing all the electronics for tractors. I mean, it's, and I don't know if it's because the industry itself needs to meter this technology out slowly because they need to milk it to get all the, all the, all the good they can off of each piece. Or if it's just that there isn't the expertise to implement the technology. Right. But as a whole, agriculture is really, really behind, you know, the, the technology curve, you know, and, and you would think something as important as food would have naturally evolved to be a, a higher priority on the technology chain. But I just, I don't see it personally, you know, on a broad scale, you know, not each individual farm, but just as an industry. So, yeah, it takes a while. And I think it gets back to the point you're saying um, earlier about, yeah, I don't think people, you know, people always hear about, consolidation in food and ag and it's true there has been a lot of consolidation however we are still a highly fragmented industry if you were to compare us with other industries you know the amount of widespread adoption it requires to make significant change in agriculture it's it's just there's a reason why it just always seems to lag i think but yeah it does seem like that you know we are behind other industries technologically in, in a lot of ways yeah, I've never looked at it from that. You bring a good point about just because everybody's so fragmented and it's probably not cost effective. You know, you got to be over certain size of a farm to justify having an auto steer or justify having a sprayer or a combine. You know, you have to get to a certain scalable level. And the fact is, is that the majority of farms would still be considered small enough to not really warrant the investment in all that extra technological capital, you know, capability right there. Yeah, definitely. So, I know you're kind of a, a trader on the side. Uh, have you looked at crypto markets and uh, any interest in uh, getting in from a trade perspective? I, I'm, I'm fascinated from it just, just as a, you know, watching, watching it all unfold. I've never, I've never traded, never bought any, you know, I just, I felt like I, I've kind of got my hands full whenever I am in the market of the corn or feeder cattle or wheat or, you know, natural gas, any, any of the things that I might happen to be trading, I've, hadn't hadn't in in several months just more or less because it's so flat but uh but as far as the bitcoin i i thoroughly enjoy also you know watching people lose their mind over you know <laughs> going up yeah. you know and, and and it's almost you you see these uh, it'll like just say bitcoin because that's the most popular it has a massive down day you can almost feel the exuberance from the people who are we're just so sure something like this is going to fail. And then it, they, they get a, a little glimmer of it might fail and they are so happy. And, and from a, from what I've picked up over the years of trading commodities from a psychological standpoint, when, when that many people are wanting something to fail more often than not, it won't mm. because it's, it's almost going against the grain. You know, there's because once they are surprised that it survives, then they almost become believers and it, and it becomes a self-fulfilling, almost, almost a conversion, you know, of, of 
of thoughts on their on the on their opinions of something like that. Yep. So you know, and it, I would be much more worried about Bitcoin's future if I got more of a sense of, you know, it's always going up and never going down. Right now, my sense is that everybody is just like, oh, it's going to crater. We're we can't wait to cheer on. You know, watch the Hindenburg explode. I mean, that's right. that's where I think that people see, or my opinion of the public's perspective of, of cryptocurrencies, and you know, and in I, I have vaguely read up a little bit on Ethereum. You know, it's not so much a well. That's the currency, or Ether is a currency for the Ethereum blockchain. Yep. It it sure seems like it's maybe more of a of a contender to be stable. You know, stable long term as far as you know, Bitcoin's probably never going away as as its original, but. But the Ethereum platform seems like it's much more geared towards agriculture and some things where you're gonna have to you're gonna have to trace transactions and contracts and, and things like that. I mean, you know, but it's 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 almost like when the internet first started, there was, you know, you had AOL, you had Comcast and I, I can't remember maybe not even Comcast. I can't remember some of the names of some of the ones that have long since failed, but you know, everybody had their little thing that was cool in the moment. And yeah. then you you it happened in real time. So we don't notice it, but you know, think of how foreign it is now to think of an AOL, you know, hard, hard disk that you had to put in your computer and that was your internet, you know, to where we are now. So think of like those kind of things are like the Bitcoin or the Ethereum. It's, it's basically like a startup internet company or internet provider in the early days, you know, five, 10 years down the road, it'll be so common that we won't even notice the transition probably. Right. I think you're 100% right. I'm glad you brought up Ethereum too, because that's been me lately. We, uh, one of the guests we had, uh, well, by the time this, by the time this publishes, it, everybody listening will have already heard, but had a guest on um, a startup founders for something called Origin Trail, which is a protocol built on Ethereum, and they're having a, one of those initial coin offerings. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I think maybe just to learn it, I'll kind of dip my toe in and get involved. Well, you got to buy it with Ether, and so uh, I was like, okay, well, what's Ether cost? Seven hundred bucks. Okay, wow, that's uh, it was nine hundred this morning. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the whole thing. Since yeah, in the week since I've been looking, like it's gone from seven hundred to over a thousand, and I'm like, yeah. oh, well, uh, you know, on one hand, it shouldn't. In the grand scheme of things, it shouldn't you know, I shouldn't try to time the market. That's a, that's a losing game. But on the other hand, it's hard to stomach paying a thousand bucks now when a week ago when I started looking, I was at 700. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and that's the thing you, you and everybody else has buyer's remorse, but if yeah. you bought it now and it went to 2000, you, what a great deal you think you would have. Right. And then yeah. you'd be like, well, I'm going to buy some more and it's going to four and that would still seem cheap. So it's all about your perspective. And, 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 and that's the psychology that you pick up in, in, in doing some trading or, or at least what I think you pick up is you, you see those, those patterns emerge of, you know, people regretting cause they didn't buy. And then, then that being the fear of buying it when on the all reality, they should be buying it because the, the, the fundamental reason for buying hasn't changed. Just the price changed. Yep. Does that make sense? You know, like the Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever it is, you know, they, you're, you're really betting on what their value is going to be two years from now, you know, but it's, but it is pretty, you know, if you're one that bought early, it's really exciting watching it go up. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, I got it. It's got to be. Well, Jared, I, I'm sure everybody listening is probably already following you on Twitter, but in case they're not, uh, what, what's your Twitter handle so we can have people follow up with you? Oh, it's just at Jared McDaniel, at J-E-R-O-D-M-C-D-A-N-I-E-L. I just, when I started, I used my name and uh, I'm kind of glad I did because that, that makes it a lot easier to, to keep it straight with people. 
Yep. That's, that's what I use as well. I, man, I appreciate this. This has been awesome. Got, got some talk in on farming and ranching, some talk on data. The cattle stuff is really interesting to me. I wasn't expecting that. And then of course, talking cryptos and, and blockchain is, is what we're doing right now. So um, I appreciate it all, man. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed doing it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jared. I definitely need to do a better job of getting producers like him on that are thinking progressively, but still rooted in the practicality of running a business when it comes to their farm or ranch. So enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. We are about to wrap up this series on blockchain. In fact, next week is the final episode in this series. Uh, I hope that you've gotten value from it. If you have, I would love it if you head over to iTunes and just rate and review this podcast, or if or if you use a different podcast player like Stitcher, I think you can rate and review. If you would just take 30 seconds, rate and review this podcast so other people can uh, see the content is worthwhile and valuable, I would really, really uh, appreciate you doing that. And then if I can just make one more request of you, we are really starting to ramp up our YouTube game uh, with AgGrad. So if you could head over to YouTube, find AgGrad, A-G-G-R-A-D, and subscribe to us on YouTube, I would really appreciate that. That's one of my objectives for this year is to ramp up our video game. You'll see some interviews there, and uh, I think you'll get some good value out of that too if you're interested in careers in agriculture. So please head over to YouTube and subscribe to the AgGrad account there. Thanks all. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,